The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. Hello and welcome, New Covenant Community Church. Uh, We're glad that you are joining us here online. Uh, Just to be transparent with all of you, this is being recorded on Saturday morning, the morning before Easter. We certainly hope that you uh, have seen the invites that we have sent out via text, email, on social media, and many of the personal calls that we've made to inform everybody of our drive-in services uh, that will be starting on Easter. So I certainly hope that if you're watching this, that you've already been with us Uh, Easter morning and that we have celebrated his resurrection together as a church family. So please keep in mind also that as we continue through time, uh, until this coronavirus storm passes, we will continue meeting outside in our parking lot Sunday mornings at 1045 for a drive-in service. We are really excited about this and I'm very excited to be preaching this message tomorrow, uh, Easter morning. If you would have asked me on September 15th, of last year of 2019 which was my first Sunday in the pulpit as the pastor of New Covenant Community Church uh, what I would have expected Easter to look like I guarantee you that if you'd have asked me on that day what Easter would have been like I would have never ever expected to be preaching on a Saturday morning to an empty room uh, and then expecting to preach the next morning Easter Sunday morning uh, in a parking lot from a scissor lift Uh, But if the devil has used this coronavirus and the interesting times in which we're in, if he's used it to attempt us to not preach, to attempt to create a situation that would stop our preaching, that would stop our worship, that would stop our loving one another, I just want to tell you, and I'm excited to announce this to the entire church tomorrow morning, is that the devil has failed. He has failed to stop our preaching. He has failed to stop our worship and our loving. And it just so happens that I have another one of the devil's failures to tell you about this morning. So if you are joining us for the first time with this message, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew being the first book in the New Testament, going to chapter 28. Now tomorrow morning on Easter morning, or if this is you're watching it on Easter morning, you'll know that Throughout our world, there are many different ways in which preachers will be preaching about Easter. Uh, Some will be preaching specifically just about the crucifixion and what it was that Jesus' body endured. Other people will be preaching it from the standpoint or from the perspective, rather, of one individual person other than Jesus, perhaps Peter or perhaps John, what it was that they experienced as they went through the Easter weekend. Some will preach about the Old and New Testament and about how Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies, the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies all throughout the Old and New Testament and how He fulfilled every single one of those. Uh, Some preachers will be preaching about a timeline going from the cross to the grave or from the cross to the ascension, a timeline of preaching through that span of time as it was about 2,000 years ago. What I believe the Lord has put on my heart to preach this Easter season is what does it mean for believers and non-believers if he is risen if he is risen what does it mean for believers and non-believers if he is risen 
Now this question of whether or not if he is reason, even secular historians will agree that the death, burial, and resurrection, certainly some disagreement maybe of how it has happened, but the event, the Easter event of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of that actually taking place in history, even secular historians agree across the board almost. This is one of the most perhaps widely supported both biblical and non-biblical historical writings. This event happened. And what does it mean for believers then? What does it mean for non-believers? Now, much to the opposition of the commonly held belief that, or the political correctness, or the way that our earthly brains think that there's this ambiguous scale upon which people are judged, we know that that is not true. God's Word teaches, and it teaches explicitly, that there are God's children, And there are those that are not God's children. There are believers, and then there are non-believers. There are those that are redeemed, and there are those that are not redeemed. Matthew 25, verse 31 and 33 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered together before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. So we see very clearly there's not this ambiguous scale. It is not as if God just separates out the really good and the really bad people. And then he has this huge other group that would represent probably most people. And he'd say, well, I, I, you know, you're a crummy person, but you're cute, so I'll save you for the good side. And, and, and you're just terrible and you smell bad, so I'm going to put you over here with the bad. And, and it is not that way. They're believers. They're non-believers. If He is risen, what does it mean for believers? What does it mean for non-believers? And it's my prayer, it has been my prayer this entire week, that the Holy Spirit would help me to rightly divide the word of truth. So if you're in your home, uh, please join me in praying. Father, we are so humbled by by what you bring us through. We're humbled in your presence, God. And I just pray that you would that you would direct my speech, you direct my tongue to rightly divide what it is that you have spoken so clearly to us in your word. Be alive among us today, God. Be alive among us in a special way that pricks our hearts that that causes us to deal with what it is that you have done on the cross for us. In Jesus' name. And we all say together, Amen and Amen. I hope you have your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, There was a man by the name of Sir Michael Faraday. He was a great scientist in the early 1800s. And he was nearing his death, and he was a very famous scientist, and a reporter came to his home to ask him, ask this great scientist, Michael Faraday, about his speculations of the afterlife and what it was that Christ had done for him. To which the scientist looked right in the eyes of this reporter and he says, Speculations? What makes you think that I have speculations about what it is that my Jesus has done for me? I know that my Redeemer lives in there, for I know that I will live with him and perhaps the very same text that michael faraday was reading was matthew chapter 28 which is where we are now looking to verse 1 and it says now after the sabbath 
As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So the first thing that we notice in this narrative, this story, as we go through the Easter story of the beginning of this, of this amazing event that did happen, is we notice first God's unparalleled, unprecedented, unhindered, and unmatched power. We see here that it is not God Himself that's coming down to roll away the stone. It's one of His angels. It's one of His created beings that comes down to roll away the stones. And, and what happens? What happens when one of God's created beings in this unhindered kind of way, when heaven touches earth, what happens? We see that the earth begins to quake. That His countenance, the very countenance of this created being in a sinless form as we see heaven touching earth. His countenance is like lightning. His clothing is as white as snow. And very quickly, right off the bat here, we see the great differentiation between what this event means, what Easter means for believers and non-believers, between the goats and the sheep, if you will. The first thing that we see for the believers is that the stone was rolled away. Now here's why this is such a huge deal for Christians, for believers, for Christ followers. It's because a stone over a tomb represented death. A stone over Jesus' tomb represented a failed mission. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. So a, a stone over the tomb of Jesus represented this, this great defeat of what it was that Jesus had come to accomplish. A stone over Jesus' tomb represented the devil's victory. And I don't know that it happened this way, but I imagine in my mind that as, as Jesus is growing up as a child, and even from the time that Jesus was born, the devil's working through the king hair to try and, to try and wipe out Jesus and to kill him and to kill all the young, all the young males at the time and to, to kill him that way. And then as Jesus grows, the devil tries to kill him again through all the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to kill him in all these ways. The devil tempted him in the wilderness before his ministry began. All these ways that the devil is trying to get him. And if I have to imagine in my mind, the way I picture it in my mind is that when Jesus is hanging there on the cross, the devil's saying, yes, we're getting him. We're getting him now. We're, we're, he's, he's going to die. And when Jesus died and breathed his last, last, the devil thinks that he's won. When he's in the grave and the guards come and they seal up, I'm thinking that the devil is probably thinking to himself, we've got him now. He's there and he's there forever. But can I just tell you, church, that is not the way that it happened. The stone was rolled away. And for believers, for the sheep of God, for the redeemed children of God, for believers, what that means, what that represents to us, is that sin no longer has any power. Death, which is caused by sin, no longer has any power. The grave no longer has any power over the believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only was the stone rolled away, I love this, it's not, it's, God has a wonderful sense of humor, not only is the stone rolled away, church, but the angel has his angelic behind sitting on this stone. This very thing that represented defeat, the end of a failed mission, 
the angel is sitting on. What I've been telling our church as we've gone through these difficult days, I've been telling them that what we're experiencing in our world today is very much like Peter when he was walking on the water to Jesus. And Peter sees the wind and the waves and it begins to distract him and he begins to sink in the water. And Peter cries out to Jesus and Jesus reaches out to save him. And what I've said about that whole picture, that whole story, is that the very thing that was over Peter's head was already underneath Jesus' feet. And what I think we could also add to that is the very thing that represents death and destruction and and our defeat. It's not only underneath Jesus' feet, but it's underneath the angelic tushy as this angel comes in and ushers in this great victory. So if He is risen, church, if He is risen, instruments and signs of death have become our reminders of victory. If He is risen, instruments and signs of death Crosses and whips and nails, the cat of nine tails, empty tombs, tombs that people are supposed to, their bodies are supposed to stay in forever. Those things have become our reminders of absolute and utter victory. I love God's word. I love Easter. I love what it is that Jesus has done to redeem people back to himself. What about the goats? What about the non-believers? The contrast very quickly, we see what happens to the guards thus far in the Scriptures that we've gone. What happens to the guards? When you say, it might say, who are the guards? And that's a good question. If you go back just a little bit to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62, this records on the Saturday of that weekend that Jesus was crucified, the day before He rose. We read, it says, and on the next day which followed, the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So the guards, many people thought, and perhaps it was Roman soldiers under the authority of Pilate, but from what I'm reading here, it tells me the best interpretation I can have is that these were temple guards. These were people in cahoots with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These perhaps were the very people that came with Judas, the mob that came at night to arrest Jesus. Perhaps the very same men. And they're standing there. They're standing there guarding the tomb. The ladies are there and they see this angel come. The earth is shaking, countenance like lightning, clothes as white as snow. They begin to shake violently and they fall to the ground like dead men. Like dead men, the Bible says. How is it, church, how is it that for Christ's followers, this angel coming to usher in this wonderful victory over sin and death represents this great freedom, this great triumphal, ripping the stone away from the door and sitting on the stone. It represents something wonderful to Christ's followers, but to Christ's mockers, to unbelievers, to people that are disobedient to Christ and following their own sinful desires, it represents deadness. How is that? It's because Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
what I've had non-believers tell me before when I am describing to them their sin and describing to them the gospel and the wonderful news that they can be saved and, and that they have a sin debt that needs to be paid and they need Jesus to cover them with His blood and to forgive them, I'll have non-believers say to me, they'll say, well, I'll, I'll pay for my sin when that time comes. Whatever consequences I need to face, I will face. Almost as if they're like doing some kind of noble thing of, of being willing to shoulder the burden of what it is that they've done. Can I just tell you that when, when Christ returns or when you die and you're not in Christ, you will be like a dead man. You will be like a dead woman. You will not live. There will be nothing courageous about you being willing to shoulder. No, when the full weight of realizing that you have offended a holy God because of your rebellion, you will fall to the ground like a dead man. There will be a deadness. So when you die or when Christ returns, my dear friends, who will Jesus be for you? Will He be the forgiver of your sin? The one who ushers in your freedom? Or will He be the exposer of the fact that you have lived your entire life for your own selfish, sinful desires as you've lived in rebellion? against him my friends there is a christless reality and that place is called hell and some people say well that's hellfire and brimstone preaching i don't like that kind of preaching do you know do you know how hard it is church do you know how hard it is for a preacher to preach about the place called hell that people go there that that nice people go there that friendly people go there and family members go there it's a hard thing to preach. Ecclesiastes 9 says that, that, that lost people, people that are not following Jesus, their very names will be forgotten by redeemed people. Some of you have grandparents in heaven. Some of you have parents in heaven. Siblings, cousins, people in your family that have gone before you that they have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they're in heaven. And if you're lost... If your mother has died and gone to heaven and you're lost, she doesn't even know your name. What am I saying, church? What am I saying, dear friends? I'm saying come home to the cross. Come home to grace. Come home to mercy. Some of you have been raised right. Some people that will be listening to me to this message right now or tomorrow morning when I'm preaching outside in our parking lot, some people have been raised differently. You were raised in church. You were raised to know the Gospel and to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You're backslidden. You are a backslider. And what I'm saying is come home. Come home to the cross. Grace will meet you there. Mercy will meet you there. Forgiveness will meet you there. Come home to the cross. If He is risen, you need Him. Matthew 28 and verse 5 as we continue on, it says, But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen come see the place where the lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into galilee there you will see him behold i have told you 
So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring His disciples' word. And as they went to tell His disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held Him by His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. If he is risen, church, if he is risen, friends, if he is risen, the phrase, do not be afraid, and the word rejoice have become our victory proclamations. I'll say that again. If he is risen, do not be afraid, and rejoice have become our victory proclamations. Many of us have read the books and seen the movies where the battle is won against a great foe and a great enemy and you see the soldiers and the army rejoicing with a great battle cry. And can I just tell you, church, that as a believer, as a redeemed child of God, the great battle cry is do not be afraid. We have nothing to fear. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ for He's given everything that we need for salvation. The great preacher Adrian Rogers, when he was on his deathbed, and he was very soon would be passing away from this earthly life and going to heaven. He, his successor of Bellevue Baptist Church, Pastor Steve Gaines, walked near to his deathbed and he heard Adrian Rogers whisper these words. He says, I am at perfect peace. I'm at perfect peace. Why can a man on his deathbed, why can a man moments before he die sit there and say, I am in perfect peace? The reason is because Colossians 2 verse 14 says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The reason that Adrian Rogers was able to say I'm in perfect peace was because the old Adrian Rogers that was sinful was pinned to that cross just like Jesus. But he was living in Christ's likeness. He was living in Christ's perfection and Christ's holiness because he was hidden in Christ. If he is risen, instruments and signs of death have become our reminders of victory. If he is risen, do not be afraid and rejoice have become our victory proclamations. That, my dear friends, is what the resurrection means for those who know Jesus, for those who know Him. What about those who don't know Him? What about those people? Which will be many people that are listening to this, and I imagine also many people who will be in our parking lot tomorrow on Easter morning. What about those people? You say, Pastor Ben, how do I, how do I know whether or not I know Him? How do I know those things? The answer to that is very simple. 1 John 2, verse 3. It says, now by this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments. And I don't think, church, that you have to be a Bible scholar. I don't think you have to be a Bible scholar to understand that. To know that the person who doesn't, who doesn't care about what Jesus says about marriage, who doesn't care what Jesus says about drunkenness, who doesn't care what Jesus says about lying and stealing, the people that have their own mind made up about the way that marriage should look in any perversion, be it homosexuality, be it fornication, be it adultery, be it any perversion of what God says is good and right. For the people that just don't care about those things, if that's you, you don't know Him. You don't know Him. 
You don't keep His commandments. You don't care about what it is that He says. You don't strive after holiness. You don't care about be holy as He is holy. Matthew 28, look now to verse 11. As the story continues, it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money. Listen to this. Listen to how this goes. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, tell the other officials in the city, His disciples came at night and stole Him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease Him and make you secure, the Pharisees and the chief priest says to the guards that were guarding the tomb. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So here's, here's what's happening. These guards, they see these two ladies coming. They see the angel, countenance like lightning, ground-shaking earthquake, severe earthquake in that region at that moment, lightning all around, clothes as white as snow. They, they're shaking, their bodies are shaking. They fall to the ground like dead men. When they finally wake up, from whatever kind of stupor it was that they were in, they go back to the city and they tell these Pharisees, these people that oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus, the people that were in cahoots with Judas Iscariot as they betrayed him. At that moment, church, I believe that they knew. They knew that Jesus was who he said he was. They knew that he was the Christ. They knew that he was the Messiah. They knew that he did exactly what he said it was that he would do. And what do they do to cover it up? They pay off the soldiers with a bribe of money. And perhaps, friends, perhaps church, I don't know, again, this is my mind imagining what things might be like, but perhaps when those men were judged, and it's like you see the great mercy of God on this. Here they are, they killed, they murdered the Son of God, they murdered an innocent man, and here's these guards still coming, yet giving these people another chance. Another chance to turn it around. Another chance to put their faith in Jesus and to say, we've sinned against the Son of God. But they bribe these soldiers. They, just, they, they try to put it away. And perhaps their judgment will look something like God looking at them and saying, you had every chance to the very end. You had every chance. But you continued to bribe it away and to put it away and to put the Son of God... You knew that He did what He said He was going to do. You knew He was the Son of God. You knew that He was the Messiah. But you bribed your conscience away. What am I saying to you, dear friends? I'm saying, don't bribe your conscience. If you know that He is God, you know that He is Lord, you know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and you need Him. You need Him to forgive you. Don't bribe your conscience away to think that, well, we're all God's children and God is love, so therefore He loves everyone. God could never send someone to hell that He loves. Don't bribe your conscience with those things that sound nice but are not true. They are children of God. They are those that are not children of God. Which will it be for you? In a previous ministry, situation I was in at the church I was serving at at the time the church had gotten robbed and the offices had been made a mess of and, and things every drawer and cabinet had been cleared out and and they were looking for any kind of electronic that they could steal they stole and and thankfully everything was recovered but in the process of them stealing everything they must have been there hours because it, 
rummaging through everything. The offices were just a wreck. Everything on the floor and things tipped over and broken. And, and I, as I was in my office putting things away, I noticed that the shelf where my Bibles were, were were untouched except for one of them. One of them was in a black case. It was a Bible that a friend had given to me and it was inside of a black case and and, and it looked like it perhaps could be a case that some small electrical device could be in, like a, a, some kind of small laptop or a tablet or some type of electronic. And this Bible had been tipped over, and I could see where they had opened up this cover just enough to realize that it was a Bible. And then they left it. And as I'm cleaning up my office and putting these things away, and I find this cover that had just been zipped open just enough, I'm thinking to my God, myself, my God, they, they came so close. Like, their fingertips were just inches away from the Word of God that the knowledge of that could save them. That they would turn from their sin. They were so close. Don't be so close today. Don't be so close when you're hearing this podcast or you're watching this message. Don't be so close. Don't be so close to the truth that you just you slip away. Let the truth of God impact your heart. The last point, and I'll, I'll close here shortly, is if He is risen, if He is risen, there is hope for you to be saved. If He is risen, there is hope for you my dear friend, to be saved. You say, Pastor Ben, I want to be saved. I can feel the Holy Spirit drawing my heart. I know that God is drawing my heart now. And I know I'm a sinner. I know I need Jesus. I, I'm, I'm here. I'm seeing these things for the first time. I want to be saved, Pastor Ben. What must I do? Isaiah 55 verse says, and it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. If you're a sinner that needs Jesus this morning, the promise of God to you is that when you forsake your ways, your old ways, you turn from the person that you are, and you return to the Lord, the promise is that He will have mercy on you. And that he will abundantly pardon. There was a Muslim man who came to the Lord Jesus Christ and became a follower and believer in Jesus Christ. And his friends asked him, saying, What was it? What made it come about that you followed Jesus? And he said, Suppose you were walking down a road and you came to a fork in the road. And down one fork you see a bunch of dead men. And on the other road you see one man that's alive. I just decided to go down the road with the one man that was alive, and his name is Jesus. So what are you going to do, friends? This is certainly normally the time that we as a church would have an altar call where we would allow people to come forward, and we would cry with you, we would pray with you, we would, we would link arms with you physically and, and show you the way, we'd pray with you, we'd have a Bible in front of you, and we would, we would be with you in this time. And, and because if you're sitting in your home because of that, the very best that we can do is simply to say, call the church office. If you have professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know that you need Him, you've prayed in your heart, you've cried out to God and said, God, forgive me. What I know is that you need help in this walk, that you need a pastor, you need someone to come alongside you and guide you and love you and care for you. You need a church family that will encourage you and care for you. So if that's you, 
I ask for you to simply call the church office. I can be reached there almost any time. From a distance, from a social distance, if you will, we will call, we will text. I will walk with you, I will pray with you. And you will uncover the greatest love that you have ever found, the greatest grace and the greatest mercy that could ever, ever be found. That Christians, that Christ followers all over the world are recipients of and rejoicing this Easter season, that the tomb is empty. And if the tomb is empty, yours can be too. If the tomb is empty, yours can be too. And that's the invitation that we give to you this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are risen. That instruments of signs and death, they've become our victory. That what it is you've called us to do, to rejoice, to not be afraid... God, the love and the freedom we feel, nothing compares to it. It is unmatched. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Thank you for forgiving us. We never deserved it. We never earned it. But your grace has brought us to God faultless. Your mercy, when we, when we forsake our old ways and we come to you, you make us whole, you make us new, and you've granted us eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. We're very glad that you've been able to watch this video or listen to this podcast, but we certainly do invite you to come be a part of our drive-in services Sunday at 1045. God bless you today.